Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, welcome. For those of you who were with us in the morning, welcome back to this afternoon's conversation on um, the future of Arctic shipping. And for those who are just joining us, welcome. Uh, we've had a full day of Arctic discussions, which is how we like it here at CSIS. Uh, I'm Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic here at CSIS. And we uh, have the great privilege of having four fantastic discussants to help us understand uh, the future of Arctic shipping. We often see uh, this discussion in headlines and pictures, very dramatic pictures, but we hope this afternoon to have a deeper dive into really what is going on as far as Arctic shipping. Are we seeing a slowdown because energy prices are suppressed, commodity prices are suppressed, or are we seeing the trajectory continue to increase as tourism, fisheries, other activities, human activities increases in the Arctic? And in some ways, this is a tale of two Arctics. When we think of the European Arctic, particularly I'm thinking of the Norwegian Arctic, uh, uh, populated areas, very developed infrastructure. When you swing to the North American Arctic, specifically the American Arctic, you have the opposite, very sparsely populated areas, very light infrastructure. So keep that in mind as we're thinking about the future of the Arctic's uh, shipping status because there are different Arctics uh, that are having different challenges with infrastructure as well as economic development. So let me begin by introducing to you our four excellent panelists and beginning immediately to my right, uh, Helen Broll, Executive Director, the U.S. Committee on the Marine Transportation System, the very first director of this committee. So you know we have a trailblazer right here. I was appointed by uh, the Secretary of Transportation in July of 2006. Um, this committee uh, has oversights over the, the marine transportation system, focuses on uh, budget and, and the many departments that have uh, involvement in uh, America's marine transportation system. And uh, we are so grateful. Helen has focused a great deal of her uh, thinking and time on Arctic issues. This, uh, she, she heralds as executive, former executive director of the U.S. Great Lakes Shipping Association, so you know icebreakers, you know the marine transportation system, and we're absolutely delighted that you could be with us. And then uh, after Helen finishes uh, her remarks, we'll then turn to Ida Marguerite Skard, Director General of the Maritime Department in the Norwegian Ministry of Trade, Industry, and Fisheries. Uh, um, it has held this position since 2001, so you, you're seeing someone who's seen an enormous amount of change and opportunity in that span of time. Uh, she is a graduate of the University of Oslo with a master's of economics and has uh, served in a variety of uh, roles in the Norwegian uh, Ministry of Finance as well as in the private sector. And then after that, we will turn to Dr. Lawson Brigham, uh, who, again, if you're with us this morning, uh, we're able to benefit from Lawson's great insights on icebreaking operations. But Lawson is the distinguished professor of Geography and Arctic Policy at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, uh, also a senior fellow at the Institute of the North in Anchorage. Uh, so many of us, at least I was introduced to Lawson's work when he co-chaired the Arctic Council's Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment 
assessment. I think there is uh, no one else who's better placed to help us understand um, uh, the maritime picture of the Arctic. And finally, um, we have Charlotte Demir Strom with us, Director, Head of International Politics at the Norwegian Ship Owners Association. Um, and uh, Charlotte has extensive experience uh, working in both the Norwegian Ministry of Trade and Industry as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs with a great deal of focus on shipping policy, EU maritime policies and regulations, uh, and uh, so holds that uh, intersection of government and private sector. So with that, uh, I think we're ready for a fascinating discussion. And Helen, I'd like to turn it over to you to begin. You. Welcome, all of you. Thank you. I'll do that again. Um, thank you, Heather, and good afternoon, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the Committee on the Marine Transportation System is an authorized uh, federal maritime transportation policy coordinating committee. What that means is we heard cats. Uh, and in the federal government, there are over 25 federal agencies that are engaged in marine transportation. So um, if you wanted to know about aviation, you might go to the Federal Aviation Administration. If you wanted to know about highways, highway administration, uh, railroad, the same. But if you asked me, if you wanted to know about maritime transportation, I would have to say, well, what is your question? You tell me your question, and I will tell you what of the 25 federal agencies can answer that question. Um, so our job is to bring all of those agencies together um, to address um, the broader maritime transportation issues. We're not a new agency. Our job really is to serve those 25 members. The Coast Guard, Army Corps, Maritime Administration, NOAA, um, the folks in Fish and Wildlife, the Justice Department, Interior, um, uh, Federal Maritime Commission. So uh, it's a very large family. Um, we have been engaged in Arctic interests. Uh, in 2010, in Coast Guard authorization, the CMTS was directed to coordinate transportation policy in the U.S. Arctic for safety and security. We're really not engaged on the aviation side in the broad transportation sense, but certainly on the maritime side, our goal has to bring together all of the initiatives that these federal agencies are working on uh, and, and try to hone a more broad policy. So in 2013, uh, partly in response to, well, before that, but in response to our 2010 authorization, and then as a follow-up to the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment Report that I think Lawson will talk about, we did a 2013 report. It was to look at the components of a marine transportation system in the U.S. Arctic. Uh, and from there, we developed basically a primer on the components of this system. And since then, we've had other uh, activities. But if I, if I could digress just for a brief moment. Um, this morning, I um, attended the White House Arctic Executive Steering Committee meeting. Uh, and uh, uh, they asked if I would just emphasize to everybody that the, the Arctic interests out of the White House are very broad, very holistic. Uh, it is, it is the, the bigger version of a committee on marine transportation because it is about sustainable energy and sustainable communities. Uh, it is about food security and economic development, uh, coastal erosion, revitalizing the Denali Commission. So the, and, and for the first time ever, as a complementary to the Arctic Council, but not part of the Arctic Council, 
The first ever science ministerial meeting will be held in Washington, D.C., I believe Washington, um, at the end of the summer, uh, early fall. Um, and so we're very much looking forward to uh, pulling together that's something even broader than just about the environmental impacts uh, in the Arctic, um, but truly a large international science ministerial. Um, and of course then, the work, um, the marine transportation system components for safety and security are also part of that and part of the national strategy on the Arctic region, which was issued by the White House in 2013. There is an implementation plan that came out in 2014. And you will soon see that uh, after the President's visit um, to Alaska um, in September of 2015, and I understand it was, he's, he's indicated one of his favorite state visits uh, in his entire time uh, as President, um, that the, um, that there it came out of that, the, they call it the Glacier Conference. It's an acronym, I cannot tell you what it stands for, but it, it was a wonderfully well-written um, acronym. Um, that conference, uh, they doing an addendum to that national strategy in the Arctic region implementation plan. So please watch for that to make sure that we're not, not getting rid of what was done in the 2013 strategy, but enhancing it through enhanced White House engagement. The, um, as I mentioned, the, the CMTS in 2013 did a, an overview of an Arctic marine transportation system and Dr. Ellison Azara from my staff brought some, if you, we have some copies are on our website. If you're not that familiar with maritime components of, an Ar of the Arctic, highly recommended. It. It's a good primer of just the many components of the system. And we talked at that time uh, and made some broad recommendations of, of infrastructure needs for, to support a safe and secure maritime system. Then in follow-up, uh, we, on behalf of the White House, did a 10-year projection of maritime activity in the U.S. Arctic. That report was issued one year ago. It's available on our website. We have um, executive summaries with us today. So a year ago, when we still thought that Shell was going to be in the U.S. Arctic, uh, and perhaps still, um, uh, I guess the, I should backtrack and say, even though we knew Shell at that time was going to be in, we did a scenario-based analysis. So a, a plug-and-play kind of a, 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 to analyze what the low and high end um, um, activity would be in the U.S. Arctic for maritime transportation. So this was over a 10-year period. We were looking 2015 to 2025. So we set a conservative estimate of the unique number of unique vessels operating the Bering Strait. And I think we would say that if we're looking at traffic, it's really looking at what goes through the Bering Strait to indicate the kind of maritime activity you might have in the U.S. Arctic. Um, we estimated that in 2025, there would be, on the low end, 420 unique vessels. It would result in about 877 transits through the Bering Strait, or an increase of 100% over current um, estimates. So our low end through the Bering Strait was basically an increase from current of 120% to a high of 430%. In total vessels, transits 150%, up to 500%. Now, we divide that out to see if there's any diversion from other parts of the world, the Suez, perhaps, Panama Canal, um, and adding that container provision, uh, which isn't usually the larger portion of the movement. Um, but um, just uh, interestingly, we just received from the U.S. Coast Guard the 2015 numbers. Because after Shell left, um, it is often said, well, 
things are, it was, a, it, that 2012 was a blip. 2012, which was a big year, is just a blip, um, and things aren't going to increase. But in 2015, you'll be interested to know that the numbers are over 2012. So, and Shell had no more vessels in, 20, in 2015 than they did in 2012. So where is that extra, uh, extra vessels coming from? So, so Coast Guard reports that in the D-17 area, that would be their District 17 area, uh, in 2012, there were 215 Arctic vessels of concern, is how they describe it, 2015, 300. Through the Bering Strait, 480, and in 2015, 540. So, it's, so 2012 was much, 2015, if that's a new blip, where are they coming from? Um, without looking at, without giving you, I only have aggregate numbers, I'm afraid I can't tell you different countries and flags, um, but I can tell you what went up. Cargo ships went up overall. Tugs are up. Research science vessels, which is separate from, from um, uh, uh, oil and gas research vessels, science vessels. Research science vessels are up, and oil and gas research vessels are up overall, um, including 2012. Uh, and government vessels are up. Areas that went down, bulk ships went down, primarily from the Red Dog Mine. Um, tankers are down, cruise ships are down, and adventuring ships are down. So if we're looking at the commercial side of the business, cargo ships, tugs, um, uh, those having gone up, um, I think that accounts for some of that difference, but I'm afraid I only have aggregate numbers, I don't have flag, uh, flags of interest, uh, and where they may have um, originated from. But I think what this says is that our projections from 2014 are right on target for 2025. Um, clearly, you want to um, um, have to look at some of those specific numbers. So, um, but we have often said that even if the numbers stayed the same, if you looked at the track lines throughout the U.S. Arctic, the track lines are everywhere. Um, so other than just number of unique vessels, you really do have to look at just the amount of traffic moving in and around the Arctic. And given the amount of traffic and transits moving in and around the Arctic, we still need to pay attention to our infrastructure needs, our search and rescue, our oil, oil spill response, um, and the like. So um, uh, uh, the follow-up analysis that we're looking at right now after our uh, projection report is to take a look at priority of investments in the U.S. Arctic. Um, um, what kind of things do we want to do over the next 10 years, or will agencies want to take on or consider to take on um, in the next 10 years to address those needs in the system? Um, and the way we uh, look at our um, kind of uh, divide up this, the Arctic system um, for infrastructure, uh, and you will understand this, if you look at um, when we think of the marine transportation system in the United States, um, we describe it as the, the, the navigable waters, the waterways, the harbors, the ports, and the intermodal connectors. In the Arctic, it's a much more complicated conversation um, for all those reasons that you know. Um, but we still kind of look at infrastructure investment relative to navigable, navigable excuse me, easy to say, navigable waterways, physical infrastructure, very importantly, informational infrastructure, response services, and vessel services. We also are currently looking at what are the things we would want to invest in in the near term, mid term, and long term. Keeping in mind, that's a short term, it's really over 10 years. What do we want to do in the next 10 year, two years, two years after that, two years after that? Uh, 
we, we have are under consideration about 41 to 45 recommendations. Um, and I'll, I'll uh, talk about some of them generally. Um, this is not formalized yet. Um, but, but I can easily talk about those areas of interest because I think um, many of them uh, are jump offs from our 2013 report. But things that I think we're all un we're considering for infrastructure investment needs. Um, designation of a federally recognized port of refuge and what that means. Um, certainly we need currently to talk about the leverage partnerships supporting domestic and interways, international waterways coordination. And, 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 and I've already said something that isn't technically an infrastructure piece, but again, the Arctic is, is so much more complex. You can't think about infrastructure that we're going to put a piece of concrete in this spot. It's much more complex than that. To deal with the MTS, you need to think about these management schemes as well. Um, water level observation networks and all of the, um, uh, what NOAA would call the continuously operating reference stations, Arctic geodetic frameworks, port reception facilities to address current and future ships and vessel needs, and environmental protection. Um, need to continue to, to elevate Arctic weather and sea ice forecasting abilities. We need to prioritize or continued prioritize charting uh, of US, the, Mar the, the, the US maritime Arctic. It's a priority for NOAA, but where does that fit and what are the needs? Advance the Arctic communication network, including AIS capabilities and system redundancy. We need to continue the oil spill readiness um, and, and uh, pursue Arctic maritime and aviation infrastructure for emergency response and search and rescue. And certainly incorporate the polar code into US regulatory frameworks and training and safety standards. And last but definitely not least, as I was asked to say by Admiral Papp today, anytime I can expand U.S. icebreaking capacity to adequately meet mission demands in the high latitudes. He said, say it all the time. So I said it again, sir, and I'm on record. Um, so um, just, as, just for a quick example, to and then I'll pass this along. Some of the examples, um, as I said, um, if we divide up our categories, some of the things you would think about in navigable waterways are like the places of refuge, managing the waterways, and, and, and including those areas of ecological significance. Um, physical infrastructure issues may include related to a deep draft port, geodetic frameworks, commercial Arctic uses, environmental infrastructure. Some of the, some of the things that you may want to consider under informational infrastructure, weather and ice forecasting, charting, communication systems, vessel routing, response services, emergency response in general, and oil spill readiness, vessel operations and, and those issues, ice breaking, vessel operations and impact of vessel operations, and it's certainly the human element related to vessel operations, waterway usage coordination. So the CMTS, um, through its federal agency partners, are right now on behalf of the White House under the National Strategy in the Arctic Region, taking a look at what would the priorities be for infrastructure investment in the next 10 years. There's no huge surprises. These are issues that are currently being worked on by the federal partners right now. The goal, though, is to bring them in um, to coalesce them, um, ensure that those priorities of investment um, are, are consistent with 
um, those other aspects of White House I issues and needs for the Arctic, as well as just the marine transportation system component. So you'll be hearing much more of that, and um, I'll stop to let the others speak and um, look forward to answering any questions you may have. Helen, thank you. That was great and very informative. Ina, please. Thank you, Heather, for your kind introduction. And it's really exciting to be here in Washington, D.C. And it's uh, also great to be here at the CIS, CSIS. Uh, so thank you very much for, for the invitation to come here. And this institution is really in the forefront for the Arctic research and knowledge. Uh, and the, and um, it is interesting to see that the Arctic matters are getting more and more focused uh, in very many countries, and especially here in the U.S., and uh, uh, that in combination also with the U.S. as a chairman, has the chairmanship of the Arctic Council. That is very good combination. Uh, we know that there are uh, vast and unexploited resources in the Arctic, and we expect more economic activities in the years to come because of this. And because of the increased economic activity, we know that shipping will follow. We will see much increase in the traffic in the Arctic waters in the decades to come. So what is Norway's focus in the midst of all this? We, what is really important to Norway Norway in, the, uh, Norway in the Arctic is the high level of activity, and few other places have so many people living uh, in this region as Norway. Um, and um, in fact, uh, looking at the seaborne uh, traffic, we see that more than 80% of all shipping in the Arctic is taking place in the Norwegian waters. That has to do with fisheries, offshore petroleum and gas activities, tourism, and passages through the Northern Sea routes and in and out of Russia. Uh, the Arctic has always been uh, a part of Norway's identity. And to most Norwegians, the Arctic, and especially maybe the Spitsbergen, is a kind of exotic uh, with a wild and harsh nature. And the Arctic also offers a lot of challenges and opportunities, both from a research and also from a business, business perspective. And that is why the Arctic is an important policy area in Norway. And this is also one of the reasons why we, on a yearly basis, we gather uh, international researchers to a symposium in Tromsø, which is a city in the northern part of Norway, it's called Arctic Frontiers, and this year it will take place in the end of this month. <clears throat> a cornerstone in the Norwegian government's Arctic policy is to ensure peaceful, sustainable, and a prosperous development in the region through activity, presence, and knowledge. Uh, and I would say that the volume of maritime traffic crossing the Norwegian waters gives, also gives us a privileged and yet demanding position. We take this head-on and intend to strengthen our position as a leading maritime uh, actor in that region. And the Norwegian government adopted last year a new maritime strategy where the Arctic is one of the main priorities. 
and there are plentiful of investment opportunities in the Arctic. Firstly, because of the potential opening of the new sea route in the future, both for intra-regional transport and polar transits. And secondly, because of the vast opportunities in everything from extracting um, minerals and uh, resources, also re ex extracting resources in the water. And uh, also, of course, the oil and gas activities, which are already taking place up there. Uh, Norway has a long uh, shipping tradition in the Arctic, and the Norwegian maritime industry has extensive knowledge on the specific conditions and challenges that prevail in the area, such as operations in the harsh weather and the deep waters. Our industry is a world leader in innovation and technology for such operations, and we will build on this unique competence as a basis for value creation and sustainable development in the area. It is therefore somewhat uncertain as to when and how, oh sorry, um, First, I would say the drop in the oil prices and the mineral prices, which we have experienced during the last year, has slowed down the, the speed in the activity in the Arctic region. And as a consequence of that, it is somewhat uncertain to, as to when and how fast the activities will increase in the Arctic. So our experience is somewhat different, but we are in different parts of the world, so <laughs> maybe there is a good explanation, but we have seen that the, uh, the number of passages through the Northeast Passage has slowed down a bit during the last year. But uh, the only thing that we can be certain of is that change will take place and that we must ensure that we will have the necessary knowledge and infrastructure in place to accommodate a large increase in a sustainable manner. The challenge in the North are enormous, and it is only through international cooperation we can ensure the highest standards and preparedness for more activity. And the adoption of the Polar Code, which has already been referred to in the IMO, uh, represents a crucial institutional step towards ensuring sustainable shipping in polar waters. We must also ensure adequate uh, additional training of officers and crew on board ships operating in polar waters. And this is crucial to safety. And I'm happy to see the progress made and to see the adoption of a new global training requirements uh, in the STCW, STCW in the IMO in February this year. We hope for that. Uh, so to the infrastructure, which is, which is very important, the satellite-based infrastructure plays a major role and increasing role in dealing with especially challenges associated, associated with maritime activities in the high north. We welcome the initiative from the US chairmanship of the Arctic Council to have a task force on telecommunication infrastructure in the Arctic. This is an area where we have both interests and skills from our side, uh, both within the Norwegian Space Center and the business-like, and we are actively taking part in the task force uh, group work, and we look forward to see the report next year. 
The Arctic Council has an important role in the High North policy discussion, and it's only it's the only circumpolar intergovernmental body where all the eight Arctic states are members, and there are also several observer countries. And the Arctic Council must continue to play an important role in finding solutions for the challenges in the North, like they have done for search and rescue and oil spill prepare preparedness. To sum up, the Arctic has always been important to our nations, and I would say maybe especially to Norway. The slowdown of activity, which we have experienced, caused by the drop in the oil price and the prices of minerals, will most probably be temporary. And it is important to keep up the work and priority to increase skills and knowledge even more, and not least to improve the infrastructure for future industrial activity in a safe and sustainable manner. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lawson. I'm cheating a little bit. I have a couple slides. Uh, if you can call them up. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, Arctic shipping, as two previous speakers uh, have talked about, is driven all by uh, Arctic natural resource development. When we uh, were you able to get the slides. There we go. Yeah, I, I think it was really good that the first two speakers spoke about economics because when we conducted the Arctic Marine Shipping Assessment, uh, it came very quickly that it's not sea ice retreat or, or the change in the, in the top of the sea ice cover and the top of the world. It's really still about the economics of shipping and the economics of natural resource development. Here, this image just, just shows you what, what's in the Arctic and what people are coming to pick up and carry by ship to, to global markets. Uh, the estimated Arctic hydrocarbons is from the USGS study in uh, 2007 and gives you some idea that the, the Arctic is a gas province, although in some parts of the Arctic, including the United States Arctic, oil is at least uh, one large component in Greenland and, and the Kara Sea as well. But, but other commodities, as you can see, including freshwater and coal, are commodities that the, the world will need and want, and, and you take them out of the Arctic by, uh, by ship. Uh, you know about this report. It's an important one, multi-million dollar, a couple countries led it, uh, Finland, Canada, and the United States, but all of the Arctic countries, including Norway and Russia, and our friends in Denmark uh, and Iceland, uh, contributed to, to this framework document, which really was looking at marine safety and environmental protection issues. But nonetheless, we had to look at this question of, uh, you know, what, what are the drivers of Arctic navigation? And so here's just uh, 20 of them, I think, out of 130. But if you look at the price of oil when we started the AMSA was $147 a barrel. At the end of the study, it was like $50 a barrel, $55 a barrel, of course today it's slightly less than $30. That one driver <clears throat> influences completely what we call Arctic navigation. And so how many LNG tankers or how many uh, oil tankers we'll see in the Russian Arctic or whatever, who knows at this low price of oil. And, and as we know in the United States maritime Arctic where there is an offshore development today, who, who knows when that might, might change. But you can see the other factors, many, including uh, 
if we had a disaster in the Arctic, what impact it would that? If you can see the last one, the global agreements, well, we have the polar code coming. So there's a range of uh, issues that are integral to this topic of Arctic shipping. You, you may have seen our wiring diagram and cross of governance and natural resource development are the main, main drivers and influences on, on Arctic navigation. Lots of other factors, as you know. But, but, I, but I think there's some misinterpretation in, in the access to the Arctic Ocean. We, we tend to focus on these images. They happen to be passive microwave satellite images, false color energy. Greater openness in these two dates in the minimum extent. But really, nine, nine and a half months out of the year through the century, the place looks like this. There's 2,000 nautical miles plus of ice. It's two meters thick. It's not going to be a lot less than two meters thick even at the end of the century. Extraordinary change in sea ice correlated with uh, global warming and, and, and the warming of the planet is very clear. The ice, there's less extent, less thickness, the character of the ice is changing, but nonetheless, as a practical issue, the place is ice covered, and so therefore why we have the, the polar code coming. Let me finish up here. In, in the United States Maritime Arctic, if you look at data from 2013, and it's slightly less than what what Helen was talking about. But th this is the picture from AIS, from the Marine Exchange of Alaska. We have shoreside, about 100 sites that pick up the signals, and we can track all the traffic, both on the Russian side to the left, and of course on the United States Maritime Arctic. You can see on the US side, at least in 2013, most of the traffic is uh, all tug and barge, although if you look in the center of the, of the image, you can see some cargo ships going into the Red Dog Mine. On the Russian side, you see tankers and bulk carriers and lots of larger ships. But if you really look at the, either the months previous or the months uh, following, this is the traffic in the United States Maritime Arctic and around Chukotka. And this is the picture it will be at least through the century, maybe at least past mid-century and beyond. Why? Because of the practical factor uh, of its ice covered and, and the economics of shipping won't allow, like container ships, to be connected to some global shipping enterprise because of the ice cover and, and the practicalities of speed, uh, just-in-time cargoes, and whatever. Uh, a couple models today, <clears throat> this is what you might see if you had a Polo-class 6 ship, which is a low class in the scale of uh, Polo-class ships coming. <clears throat> you, could, you could actually transit north of the Russian and Eurasian coast uh, quite far with a capable ship, but you can also transit the same area in, in September in, in a free water ship. But in the future, mid-century, it's likely to be in August, September, and October that you can actually fully transit the, the whole of the Arctic Ocean, maybe in, in a ship that's not designed for the Arctic, although with the Polar Code coming into effect on the 1st of January 2017, uh, clearly you'll have to have a Polar class ship to operate in this environment. Uh, just to end up, uh, I, I think there, you can see from our recommendations in the, the AMSA, that we spread them out over these, these topics. And the most important, significant of the 17 recommendations was the Polar Code, and that's embedded in the first one. But we, we did see that uh, clearly the infrastructure gap in every dimension, whatever you talk about, only 6% of the Arctic Ocean is charted to international standards. You could start with that, no charts, or very few charts. And then you can work your way through icebreakers and ace navigation and communications and all of that. But in order to have a safety net, a reasonable safety net in, in the Arctic uh, 
uh, we certainly need to have probably, no doubt, public-private partnerships and, and uh, <clears throat> cooperation among all the Arctic states, even in investment on, on certain topics related to uh, marine transport. Uh, there, just to finalize, uh, there are four challenges, I think, that uh, <clears throat> for Arctic shipping in the future. I, I go to meetings around the world, and I always ask the question of, okay, what's the length of the navigation season? Tell me how long, and, and then they say 12 months. I said, well, let me revise my question. What's the length of the navigation season that's economic? Of course, it's silence, because nobody knows. how. What's, and, and that, even for our Russian friends, what is the season that you have access where it can be economic to drive a ship through? <clears throat> the other is a, the huge infrastructure gap. Third issue clearly is the implementation of the Polar Code. Has many elements, Polar Certificate, Polar Operations Manual, elements of MARPOL and, and, and SOLAS, and uh, standards of training, et cetera. It will be up to the flag states, but probably left to the port state control and the Arctic states to actually enforce the polar code and, and all the ships actually want to come up into the Arctic. And then finally, it's this challenge that <clears throat> CMTS and others have of, of trying to project plausible traffic. Hard to do, <clears throat> um, and, and in particular, if it's not tied to global commodities prices, really hard to see uh, when, we, when we were running the AMSA. <clears throat> many of the diplomats would ask, all I want to know is, how many ships are going to be through the North Bering Strait, you know, in 2030? I said, if I know that, I, I surely wouldn't tell you I would sell my wares and whatever. No, it takes a global economic analysis and a, and a hard look at the uh, <coughs> very complex global industry, the, the global uh, maritime uh, industry. Thank you. Thanks, Austin. That was terrific. Charlotte. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to join this panel. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, in my remarks, I would like to comment upon three aspects. The one being, uh, how does the economic situation impact industry? Secondly, why the region still matters? Why is it highly relevant? And finally, I'd like to uh, inform about an initiative called the Arctic Business. But maybe before that, uh, I could spend a few minutes about NSA, the Norwegian Ship Owners Association. Who are we? Well, in brief, we are an industry and employer organization uh, which represents 150 shipping companies. Our members deliver services and operations in all shipping segments, um, which are the short regional, that's the intra-regional shipping, the intercontinental shipping, and the offshore segment where our members actually, uh, well, our members' uh, companies uh, participate in all phases of the petroleum activities. Actually, half of the membership is active in that offshore segment, which is highly relevant for the Arctic region. The fleet is characterized by very specialized vessels as opposed to commodity shipping, and the offshore fleet in particular has a very advanced technology which enables them to operate, amongst others, in very demanding conditions, such as the Arctic. So all in all, our members' presence is highly global, with uh, 740 offices in, all around in 100 countries. And in practical terms, they operate approximately 1,800 innovation-controlled vessels on all the seas every day which makes Norway, together with the United States and some other countries, among the world-leading maritime nations. 
So how does this uh, economic situation impact the industry? It has been touched upon by the other panelists. And um, let me start about the, our member survey, uh, outlook survey. We do that uh, every year. And uh, last year, uh, quite a few of our members identified the Arctic region as a region of increasing commercial interest. And this was back then, despite of these sanctions against or restrictive measures against um, Russia. Since then, while well, we all know what has happened, the oil price has plunged and maybe is still uh, going down. The world economy is weaker and less reliable. Most market segments, shipping market segments, are severely suffering. Not all, but almost. And one out of six offshore service vessels in our membership have been laid up. And people along the Norwegian coast uh, have lost their jobs. So the picture is rather dark, and uh, the, the consequence as regards the Arctic is that the, the appetite for the Arctic is tempered, the commercial appetite. Short-term projects for the industry have become medium-term <coughs> medium or long-term projects. At the same time, several business activities in the Arctic on the Norwegian shelf are proceeding whereas some other projects are being subject to updated, revised cost impact analysis. This is, for example, the case for the Johan Kostbeg exploration field in the Barents Sea, where Statoling is the main partner. It's hard to tell whether it was the oil price or the restrictive measures against Russia, or most likely a combination of those two, that severely hit several activities on the Russian shelf. What an analyst told me, however, is that the low oil price has so far prevented Asian potential competitors from doing business in that region, depending on Asia's development of technology and competence required for those advanced operations. It may be only a question of time before they seize the opportunity. But let's remember, it has been mentioned by, by the other panelists already, that's the disadvantages of being the last one. Arctic is much more than oil and gas. For example, more business opportunities in the fisheries sector may arise, as in other sectors mentioned by the, uh, Dr. Lawson. And this is a, these are sectors where technology and all experience gained from the offshore sector in particular may be transferred for other sectors. So the market situation's different impacts on the Arctic set aside. The region is maybe more relevant than ever, and both the industry and the authorities have a responsibility to ensure a sustainable development of the region. And I believe there are three major themes of the global political agenda that converge in the Arctic. The consequences of climate change and global warming, changes in the global pattern of economic growth, trade and development. And finally, topics related to regional and geostrategic security policies, which may be very relevant in these days. And once the frozen front during the Cold War, the melting Arctic has the potential to generate a paradigm shift in geopolitics. In recent years, a number of states have appointed Arctic ambassadors to coordinate and promote their national interest in these regions. They may be either proactive or actually may, some states may have defenses 
defensive interests in that context. And uh, we all know the long list of applications as uh, observers uh, to the Arctic Council and the International Chamber of Shipping, where NSA is a member of thereof, has also applied for such an observer status. The international tensions arising from development in Ukraine added a new dimension to all these issues. But the ice, well, it doesn't stop melting even though relations between countries are cooling down. More than ever before, it's important to seek cooperation, not isolation, when addressing the future development of the Arctic. The region's strategic importance may be illustrated by China's last initiatives. Through the One Belt, One Road strategy, China is increasingly involved in transportation between Asia and Europe. In addition, the country is highly involved in the Northern Sea Route. The Silk Road Fund has invested 10% in the biggest gas reserves on the planet, that is Yamal LNG plant. Chinese are involved in ownership of Arctic LNG carriers, as well as the construction of the many of the modules, both necessary for the realization of the Yamal project. So there is a clear positioning in the Arctic, which may have not only a commercial side, if I may say. All of these trends and developments heavily affect shipping in the wider maritime industry. And as mentioned previously, the, as the polar cap ice retreats, vast opportunities open up for increased maritime activities, maybe more in the medium and long term. The offshore oil and gas productions are related to all these undiscovered fields, is obvious. Arctic destination sailings, uh, where uh, the, the, and you had all the list, the, the minerals, the rare minerals, um, inviting seabed mining, cruise, tourism, and uh, fishing grounds. And rivers are opening up for barging out of extensive natural resources from the circumpolar land areas. Several of these rivers constitute major trade lanes. The Yansei and the Lena each carry more water to the sea than the Mississippi, actually. So there is a great potential here. Well, to the general public, to the media and the politicians, the most sexy part is, of course, the transarctic sailings. It has generated by far the most, most attention. However, our own predictions for the short and medium term are rather modest. And despite these, all these seducing prospects for increased commercial activities in the Arctic, it is NSA's firm belief that our approach should be sober and our enthusiasm tempered the general backdrop of global warming and the effects of the Arctic on the Arctic region should be a major concern to us all. And last but not least, the environment is a region, as we all know, ex extremely fragile, as are the livelihoods and cultures of the indigenous people living there. Therefore, exploring and expanding current boundaries to commercial activities in the Arctic requires stepwise precautionary approach based on sound scientific, industrial, and hard-won practical knowledge. And we are of the firm opinion that the international business community itself must and should assume a truly responsible approach to exploiting the commercial opportunities in the Arctic. And also for a more pragmatic approach, 
it will be in the business community's own genuine self-interest to maintain a, well, a license to operate in these areas. A major accident or oil spill may not only severely damage the environment, but also the legitimacy of commercial activities in the entire Arctic for a very long time. So, in order to raise awareness about um, the discussions uh, for the business community, NSA launched back in 2014 the Arctic Business, co-sponsored with DMV GL, the classification society company. It is an initiative by business, for business, for all relevant sectors, that is those with interest in the Arctic region, while at the same time having the option to formulate policy advice to relevant authorities. And back then, when it was established, this was the, there, weren't, there was no such a platform at all. Since then, we also had the Arctic Economic Council, which is a cross, well, a combination of business and, and, and a governmental linked uh, platform. The Arctic Business consists of the Arctic Business Council and the Biennial Arctic Business Conference. The first conference gathered CEOs and senior executives from 18 countries, including US representatives through ExxonMobil. Development in the Arctic will to a large degree depend on commercial decisions made by enterprises, and the business community has extensive competence and experience to bring to bear in political and regulatory discussions. And I will therefore um, conclude upon, well, inviting the, uh, the U.S. industry to, to join us in these uh, deliberate discussions at the Arctic business in Buda, that is in Norway, and May. Thank you. Charlotte, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate the, our panelists' uh, very insightful comments. What I'd like to do is just I'll pose a question or two to our panelists and then allow our audience, that I'm sure has lots of questions and, and insights as well. Um, it, let me begin. Helen, thank you for giving us that little tip about there's a potential addendum to the national strategy for the Arctic region for those of us who follow Arctic policy, it's always good to hear that there's uh, some fresh documentation coming out, so we will look forward to that. Thank you for that preview. Um, as I was listening, you know, I, I think we have a paradox or maybe a mystery, because if in fact we see increasing uh, level of shipping through the Bering Strait, yet a decrease in the Northern Sea Route, Hmm, what, what's that, that delta? Um, and I, perhaps colleagues, uh, maybe Lawson, you, you follow this so closely, because I don't think the Russians have officially released the figures for last year's Northern Sea Route, but I'm told anecdotally that while applications were up seeking that, actual transits were lower than last year's uh, 53 transits uh, across. So I, I sort of, maybe speculation or unpacking that a little bit, why would that and where is it going? Uh, and where would that be? So I, maybe we all can solve the mystery uh, before we're done with the discussion. My second question is talking about costs, future costs. And I love the panel's perspective on what the anticipation of costs for implementation of the Polar Code 
beginning January 1st. And Lawson, you mentioned the, you know, uh, or maybe Helen, it was you, flagship, uh, flag vessels versus the, the port responsibility. Is there any guesstimates of, of costs? Uh, the comment on the Coast Guard mentioned that even U.S. Coast Guard vessels are not fitted for, uh, for the Polar Code. And, you know, how, what, was, what does that cost look like? And how would that impact the economics of, of shipping? Um, speaking, I don't know, there may be some colleagues who follow the insurance industry very well, but how, how are insurance uh, companies viewing, uh, you know, again, increased transit through, uh, whether that's the Northern Sea Route, the Northwest Passage. Uh, the Russians have quite extensive requirements for pilots, uh, ice-breaking uh, operations. What does the cost look like, and how would that potentially impact the future of shipping? And my last question, you can pick from any of these or, 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 or tack them on uh, each one. So we've heard, we've heard a lot of conversations both in the U.S. perspective as well as the Canadian of creating Arctic traffic lanes or Arctic corridors where they would be mapped and hopefully the navigational aids and the communications would be enhanced to try to enhance safety. What are the costs of putting in place those corridors or routes. Uh, at least in the Bering Strait, we've proposed to the Russian government a traffic vessel management scheme. I don't know where that is. I'm just looking forward to any thoughts on how the private sector would be respond would respond to those corridors. So, Helen, the, 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 the person who has herding cats on her business <laughs> well, card, I what will you think? I don't know if I mentioned I'm not in the private sector, uh, just in case you weren't sure. Uh, um, I can't answer most of those questions, to be honest, other than, you know, I think we asked that's crystal serenity what the insurance right. company exactly. thinks about uh, their upcoming transit. Um, does everybody know what the crystal serenity is? <laughs> yes, yes, and, and clearly the insurance impact must be um, interesting. I assume that's the in the ticket price. <laughs> um, yeah, implementation of the Polar Code, um, you know, and it, it hasn't begun its U.S. domestic mm -hmm. regulatory implementation scheme yet. So, um, normally in the process of doing a regulatory or doing a rule, um, any agency would have to look at the financial impact to industry. So I don't know if those that assessment's begun, frankly, um, until it's been complete. Really is a, a question for the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, and um, I don't deal with the uh, insurance industry. Um, I don't know to what extent, Allie, we did not look at, um, in terms of scenario or projections, whether there was an impact on um, insurance rates or things like that. Did we at all? I found very interesting Lawson's comment about, um, you know, whether you really need um, a polar class vessel at some point, depending on the climate um, and situation, notwithstanding the polar code changes. So um, having worked in the Great Lakes, certainly understand, you know, um, ice reinforced vessels and requirements there. I'm just not sure. Uh, frankly, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, we're trying to think about what the term public-private partnerships in the Arctic means to us, which is a, a challenge unto itself. I'm sorry, I no, no, can't no. do the private sector side too much. Okay, yeah. And then maybe Charlotte from the industry side can <laughs> supplement a bit. Um, the trade pattern uh, has to do, well, the, the, the reason for 
different figures, <laughs> US side and our side uh, in the Arctic. I think that has to do with the trade pattern. Uh, the uh, lowering of the um, of the uh, prices of minerals and metals. Uh, I think that there has been a, a reduction in the, you know, the, the volume that uh, could be transported this route, uh, and uh, the Northern Sea route is not suitable for all kind of commercial activities. For, I mean, you see very few container vessels, for instance. But uh, we last year we had the first. Uh, uh, transportation of LNG from uh, the northern part of Norway to uh, to Japan. That was the very first first one, and uh, I guess that the northern sea route is more suitable for some kind of transportation than for others. So maybe this I think that the, the, this has to do actually with the the the, the, the uh, pattern of the uh, of the trade. And of course, the situation uh, with Russia has maybe also influenced this uh, development a bit. Uh, but uh, and of course, the the drop in the oil price has also uh, influenced the activities, not the, the transpolar or the not the passages on the sea route, but the industrial activity in the Arctic waters. Uh, the cost of the polar code, I'm not a specialist into that, but already there are, you know, you have to have uh, ice-strengthened um, vessels to, to operate in the waters. So it's more to ensure that the vessels that will operate in the waters has, a substan uh, has a, you know, the standards that are needed. And also the standards for training the, the uh, seafarers, you need special skills. This has to do with security, and, and it all boils down to yes, it, the, the costs of operating this, in these waters are, for several reasons, higher than going uh, operating in other kind of waters or going through the uh, Suez Channel. But that is part of the total calculation. You save a lot of days, but then on the other side, you need escort from Russian. Uh, uh, icebreakers, for instance, and there are several other costs, like insurance. I guess that's the, uh, you know, insurance fees are higher for the operating in these waters, but this is a part of the total package. Um, yeah. Was that, did I miss one question or no? Does, does Norway have a similar construct of a traffic lanes? I mean, obviously, you have very uh, developed infrastructure, but sort of declaring corridors where it would be safe for ships. Yes. You already have, a, I'm sure, probably yes, a pretty the, sophisticated uh, there, scheme. There are sailing corridors along our coastline. And then we meet with the, our Russian neighbors, and there is a very, actually there is good cooperation between the, on the Russian side as, and the Norwegian side. Uh, you know, so we meet each other, and uh, yeah. So there is a very good co uh, cooperation in uh, that respect. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, who knows about the numbers? My guess is that we have more AIS sites and we're doing a better job of uh, um, domain awareness. And so you're picking up a lot of ships that you haven't seen. The numbers are insignificant related to global trade or, or whatever. I mean, they're, they're not insignificant for protection of people and the environment, but they're insignificant to global trade. So, um, and think again when you talk about the 57 transits of, of the Northern Sea Route, actually it was 30-something, 30 35, because when you look at the numbers, there's some dispute on what a transit is. A transit to most mariners in the audience here and myself is point A to point B. Transarctic voyage is a different animal. 
And so when you look at the numbers uh, that they're trying to be transparent, the numbers uh, have some <coughs> flexibility and agility to them, I guess I should say, to be polite. Um, but the numbers, again, are, are very small, but, but like the Ob River, the LNG ship you discussed, a very significant voyage from, uh, from um, northern Norway to uh, Japan, November, December, LNG ship, took three nuclear icebreakers to escort that ship. So the question is, even though it was a demonstration, <coughs> how economic is that? You know, and who can answer that? Only some Russian experts, I guess. Uh, the Polar Code, <coughs> I, I don't come at the Polar Code as a financial burden or whatever. It's just a, a way, of the, look, it's a seminal historic um, regime for the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, it does give the insurance industry international standards of which to, uh, to look to. Uh, in, in, well, we don't have international standards now, we will have. And, and so it's just the cost of uh, operating both ends of the world. It's a level playing field, a lot of issues. Sure, there's a cost, but if you want to operate there and protect the environment, protect the people there, protect the Antarctic, play in the maritime world, th this is what standards you have to meet. I, I did mention the port state control, because who knows what the flag states will do in, in implementation and in the speed of implementation, but you can be sure, I think, that the port states, like you go to Nome, or you go to Nuke, or you go to Tromso, or wherever, they're gonna ask for your polar certificate. They're gonna ask for your polar operations manual. They're gonna ask what, what is the experience of your mariner, and, and how do you meet the polar code? So in order to be there, let's, let's just say a large cruise ship, <laughs> you're gonna have to meet these new regulations. So I think people say, well, there isn't gonna be law enforcement. I, I actually think uh, there's an opportunity here to actually for the, the Arctic states to have uh, some leverage in, in this implementation of the Polar Code. Uh, traffic lanes, I, I'm not a big fan of traffic lanes being icebreaker captain because I may go 10 nautical miles on the other side because it's safer, more efficient. I'm not running over any indigenous people. So, so the, the idea of traffic lanes in the ice in some areas like Bering Strait is, is novel but not applicable in the free water uh, that, that's another thing. So my sense is that the traffic lanes, whatever we come up with in Bering Strait, will be seasonal <clears throat> because in the ice cover, it, it's a different ball game. Now, in some parts of the world, Canadian Arctic and Russian Arctic, there may be traffic lanes because of the infrastructure that's there, but my guess is that <clears throat> traffic lanes are a lot different in the ice than they are uh, in, in, in the rest of the planet. Well, ship owners uh, rarely do something because it's fun. Usually there is a business opportunity. And apparently, although the, the number of, um, well, depending on whether we talk about the transatlantic uh, sailings or uh, offshore operations, which are quite different. And now we're talking about transatlantic operations. And, and I asked the member, well, this must have been expensive. Yes, probably. But there was a business opportunity and they did did, did the, the passage. So, and, and, and uh, I think we should be careful, uh, and maybe it's strange that I'm the one saying that, um, to focus too much on, 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 on costs, because uh, entering into this re region requires uh, expertise, competence, the infrastructure, uh, 
there, there should be, there is, and there should be a high level of entry and barrier of entry. It's not for anyone to, to enter into region as soon as the, the ice, ice has recovered. So there is, there is a high level of entry, and uh, I think it's important to, to, for the industry, uh, as I mentioned, to, uh, to ensure sustainable development, and it, may, it has a price, and, and that's the way it is. It's much more complicated to operate in those regions, and, and it may be in a very long term where uh, the, the, um, there's more business uh, that the prices will, will decrease, but well, then time will show, but first of all, it's it's a matter of uh, um, going forward uh, very cautiously and uh, in a sustainable manner, and that has a price. Very well said. All right, I've given everyone some time to get their questions, so please let me see some hands. I'll bundle those questions, and then we'll allow our panelists to respond. Please identify yourself and your affiliation. Sometimes you have to speak pretty boldly into that microphone so we can hear you up here. Sir, I see two questions right in the back. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you. Duke Snyder from Martech Polar Arctia. More comment, I think, and I, I'm, I'm looking right at Lawson. He knew this was coming. Uh, Heather, your last series of questions, you bounced them a little out to uh, some of us in the audience uh, to fill in some gaps here. Uh, first of all, we, we've got to be careful of not comparing apples and oranges. The Arctic is a big ocean. It's surrounded by five or more countries, depending on how you look at that that are the, the, the Arctic coastal states. And each one of those has regional shipping variations. So the traffic in those regional variations goes up and down, changes back and forth, depending on hundreds of different economic factors. Comparing the Norwegian traffic with the Canadian traffic, with the traffic through the Bering Strait, is apples and oranges. There's ups and downs. As a matter of fact, in the Canadian Arctic, there's been a huge upsurge in bulk shipping with the opening of one mine in the Eastern Arctic, the number of bulk ships in the Canadian Arctic this past summer went up over 1,000% if we use the same measures that we often compare the Northern Sea Route with because there were zero ships the year before, there were 10 or more ships last year. The Russian statistics are out. They are very prompt to broadcast those numbers. The numbers are basically down, absolutely correct. We know that there were a larger number of applications for movement within the Northern Sea Route, but the number of transits were down. Most of it related to development, Sabata, Yamal, the construction going on there. So numbers up, numbers down, we look at that. Then we speak to corridors. Yes, Canada has, has been looking at corridors. Those corridors have existed in the, the, uh, the Northwest Passage for decades. What's happening now in Canada, and, and I looked at Tony here to either nod or say, Duke, you're a little off the mark, is Canada is looking at how to focus the future development and selecting corridors where the, the, the focus should be on. Of the seven major routes for the Northwest Passage, all of them are charted correctly, well, modern, to a reasonable width. Lawson, you're absolutely right. Shipping lanes, they terrify me as an icebreaker captain because they narrow down your capability because we have to move. The ice is there, the ice is going to be there. So all of these pieces come around to an insurance agent, looks at it and says, oh my God, the risk is higher. <laughs> yes, as soon as you go over the 60 north and that varying north, the insurance on a ship goes up. In Russia for the Northern Sea Route, you may be paying 400,000 US 
for the privilege of running through it. I'll add and close in Canada, you can come through the Northwest Passage without paying a cent. Thank you. There you go. Thank you so much. Terry, yeah. Hi, I'm Terry Toland with AT Kearney. Uh, my question is for Dr. Brigham. Uh, you mentioned the importance of public-private partnerships in the region. My question for you is where specifically do you see the greatest opportunities for public-private partnerships in the Arctic, and what are some specific examples of such partnerships in the past? Thank you. Thank you. I think I saw another hand over there, and then we'll let our panelists respond. Hello, uh, Richard Wanneman, Public International Law and Policy Group. This is for the panel. Um, as the name implies, I come at it from more of a legal regulatory side. But in terms of polar code and enforcement, this is a little bit of two questions, but it gets at the same point. Have we, the, the Arctic Council has already moved to adopt the, uh, the oil cleanup aspects of it. Has there also been discussion or movement of doing a unified common enforcement uh, protocol since, as has been indicated, flag state enforcement, even port state enforcement is not, uh, is not standardized. It might be it, it very suspect in certain areas. Um, a recent uh, series in the New York Times actually indicated or highlighted some of the problems of flag state or even port state enforcement. The other one then goes to insurance companies. Have, the, have Lloyd's or other insurance companies indicated that come January 1, 2017, they might even drop coverage of ships that are planning to transit the, polar, uh, transit the Arctic but do not meet polar code. They just say, we, it's much too much of a risk. We have a standard. We're just dropping your coverage, or we're going to raise it so high that you cannot possibly run a ship there. All excellent questions and comments. Uh, Lawson, why don't we start with you because you collected the most, but I want yeah, to I mean, make sure the other panelists have an opportunity to Polar to Coach, technical uh, issues, of course. Um, yeah, the, the Arctic states could, in fact, work together, maybe through the Coast Guard Forum, not necessarily through the Arctic Council. Arctic Council is not an operational agency, policy body, you know, in a governmental forum, coffee drinking club kind of thing. I mean, a serious organization, but but I, I think it's in the individual states, as members of IMO, will, will enforce this new, these new uh, amendments to Solus and, and, and Marpole. Um, and that gets to another issue, whether the United States will just roll the amendments into U.S. Uh, procedures and policies, which is likely, you know, on 1st of January 2017, you're headed to Nome, you're likely to meet the... Uh, have to meet the polar code, I, I suspect. Um, what other part of your, uh, the polar code? And uh, I mean, I really think that the port states will be in the driver's seat for, for implementation, for, for enforcement. Um, how we all get along to do that, the, the Arctic states will, will be interesting. It was the Arctic states, in fact, who went to IMO and, and lobbied hard, have special rules and regulations for, for the, uh, w w with the public code, so. If I may just uh, supplement a bit. Uh, I totally agree that the uh, uh, Arctic Council is not a decision-making uh, body uh, when it comes to the maritime sector. Uh, but, of course, I know that it is on the agenda that they will discuss the implementation of the Polar Code. 
and of course they can exchange views on how to implement uh, and then it's up to the port state control to uh, to see the enforcement so and, and in this respect i think that the arctic uh, council member countries has you know similar uh, might have similar views or might not but uh, anyway it's uh, very useful to have this kind of discussion within the arctic council member countries because they are all there. So, uh, and we, we should not, well, we, we shall not forget that the polar code is not only about the Arctic, it's also on the south, southern part of the, the globe. Thank you. Thank you. If I could add um, a bit to what Lawson said, even before the Coast Guard Forum, Coast Guard had, U.S. Coast Guard had a very good relationship, working relationship with the Arctic nations, um, including Russia, and still does. Uh, and the implementation of port state control is something that impacts them on a daily basis operationally throughout the United States and in places that are much busier um, with ships coming and going. Um, so so the, I guess one of the questions would be, is it going to be more challenging to implement, um, to, to check for the polar certification um, uh, in the Arctic than it is anywhere else? Um, it's not about the ships heading to Nome. It's not going to be a lot of ships going into Nome and whether there's someone there to go to the bridge and check their, their, their books. Um, it's the, it's the, 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 the middle of the ocean, which is hard to get to, hard to check. Um, will there be ways to uh, address that, perhaps with third-party providers or, or something similar to the ISPS? So um, I, I just, you know, I think, though, especially with this Coast Guard formed, this enhanced engagement, I think that's probably not the bigger challenge. It's just the geography of the area, making sure that you can see these people coming and going, that the domain awareness is enhanced. So, um, um, and, and uh, I guess with regard to um, having lanes, we'll see what the uh, Bering Strait PARS says and whether it is in fact uh, uh, helpful. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there are good examples, but ports and communication systems and satellite systems can all be either completely commercial or uh, <clears throat> some sort of public-private partnership. I mean, in, in the AMSA, when we, we conducted this study, we did say that we didn't expect that all of the taxpayers of the eight Arctic states would pay for all this stuff, that industry has a specific role here in enhancing safety and environmental protection in the whole of the Arctic Ocean. You want to use the place and not abuse it, you, you, you get to participate in, in the funding of the safety net. There's no safety net in the Arctic today, or very few. I mean, I, the coast of Norway is a global trade route, part of the global enterprise, the shipping enterprise. It's not necessarily Arctic, that's why I think my friends call it the high north. But, but, but the other parts of the Arctic, there isn't any infrastructure. You can pick, pick a place, even in the Russian Arctic, there's minimal, uh, really uh, high value safety uh, infrastructure. So I, I uh, even the Russians in their um, investment <coughs> for uh, infrastructure to facilitate navigation, it, it's expensive. Uh, the, the hardest one, I guess, to overcome is uh, who's going to pay for the charting and hydrography, and that's usually the state <coughs> responsibility. And in the United States, only 1% of uh, U.S. maritime Arctic is charted to international standards from what Admiral Glang told me, uh, I'm a member of HSRP, Hydrographic Services Review Panel, and really in the modern way of hydrography, only 1% is covered. So we have a long way to go in the United States, as, as Canada does, and, and, and our Russian colleagues. So 
and the coast of Greenland. All of these places require uh, charting and hydrography and likely to be paid for by the taxpayers. But it's a, it's a, it's a good question about public, where do they fit in. No doubt port development has to be uh, one. And, but I think communications and uh, satellite systems uh, as safety systems. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I think this is Tom's point. Go ahead. No, Helen, go ahead. Uh, it, it, uh, P3s. Um, the third report we have to do for the White House is the application of P3s um, to support uh, infrastructure investment. Um, but we've been looking at public-private partnerships um, in general about all maritime infrastructure throughout the United States. Um, the term that was given to me about the Arctic and Alaska is it's, it's less public-private partnerships and more private-public partnerships. Um, uh, and, and um, uh, uh, you know, while, while we've all, as federal partners, have been visited very much by, by the Port of Nome and the Port of, you know, the folks from Barrow and, and the folks from Port Clarence and everybody who, you know, they really would like to have uh, federal investment and support um, to develop their, their port infrastructure, and we all appreciate that. Um, the, the bigger issue um, for federal support is really the definition of what a public-private partnership is. We did do a legal analysis um, of federal government authorities on public-private partnerships, at least with the six, six major um, agencies, and found that everybody had a different definition of what a P3 meant. They had different authorities on how to implement that. Um, that um, um, and, and it all may be mute. mute. <laughs> it all be moot um, because the Office of Management and Budget thinks divestiture is a form of public-private partnerships, um, and I don't think that's the case. Um, we, we, that's just me talking. Helen Brol doesn't totally think getting rid of it doesn't necessarily totally mean it's a public-private partnership, but um, we've started to do a little bit of homework. We did at least one webinar um, with stakeholders to talk about, um, you know, how, in the Arctic, what are you doing on public-private partnerships? I've got to be honest. What we got was, we'll be happy to, to, to lease our ship to you. Well, the, you know, we do, the government does a lot of contracting, but that's not really a, technically a public-private partnership. We do understand we can all hire services and, and infrastructure. That's not really a public-private partnership. Um, I, you know, there is some success um, in terms of uh, providing federal property and lands um, for, for sharing or use, long-term sharing and use. Um, you know, and, and even transferring some of those, the Maritime Administration has been some, has had some luck as a, as a, as a third party assistant to transfer federal properties from some of the military agencies to some port authorities within the, the continental United States. Um, and, and maybe there's, there's room for that. Um, you know, we haven't begun to think about the inlands, the, the, the land side of all of this. Um, thoroughly, because it's not a typical intermodal connector kind of a land connection. Um, in Barrow, there is no land connection. It's all by water, and um, and we haven't begun to talk about how we. It, it, I, I guess we kind of. I'm suggesting we think of this holistically, as we're as we're looking at sustainable communities and villages are moving inland, um, um, and need infrastructure. Is what is the maritime component and role on that? What and I know it's. There's been a discussion today about whether or not the climate change makes a difference or doesn't make a difference and whether it's an economic advantage. Um, but, but that whole dynamic of the communities in the Arctic and how they're impacted and if there's a federal, if there's a maritime role with that, um, I think it's an interesting one which we haven't even begun to touch. So um, P3s, ultimately, it's still 
um, one example at a time, um, rather than a broad conversation about we need P3s. I'm, I'm just not sure we're there yet um, to understand what that means. There are certainly some wealthier partners in the Arctic than others, um, um, and it'll be interesting to see how they want to engage. Thank you. Very briefly, uh, speaking about the public-private partnership, first of all, this is about uh, the dialogue, uh, the interaction between the industry and, and authorities when developing the Arctic, obviously. And then just as an example, the, the, uh, I want to mention this search and rescue in the high, in the high north, this Harinur project, which is a project, I think I could define that as, as a, as a uh, public-private uh, partnership uh, project funded by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and where uh, a multitude of business, uh, well, companies have uh, uh, decided to co-found a project. I mentioned Statoil, uh, Shell, the Norwegian Hull Club, ConocoPhillips, NSA, of course, DNVGL, and many others. And I do know that um, the um, U.S. interests have been invited to join, uh, join into that project, just to mention one example. And, and thus ends the CSIS Arctic Day. Uh, we thank you for being with us, particularly if you have made it through the whole day. And uh, we look forward to future programming. Thank you all for joining us. Have a great evening.